In this Mick episode of Industrial Industries World Radio, we take a look at Big Macs, Shamrock Shakes, French Fries, Golden Arches, all of that as we take a look at the history of McDonald's and a whole lot more. So let's get to it. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, people of all ages, shapes, and sizes. I'm your host, DJ Glowing Ice, for this episode of Industrial Industries World Radio, and this is episode 34, and it's a uh, quite huge episode, as this is covering the world's largest fast food restaurant, McDonald's. Um, When I wanted to do the history on McDonald's. I wanted to take my time with this because there is a lot to cover. I actually went out and bought a book. I am not a book reader. I do not enjoy reading books um, unless it really is fascinating to me. And I bought this book. It's written by Ray Kroc called Grinding It Out. Ray Kroc, he is uh, one of the key players in McDonald's's success, which we will get into into this story. But anyways, he wrote this book, Grinding It Out, The Making of McDonald's, and uh, how many pages is in? Almost, almost about 200 pages in this book. And over the month, I've read this book, taking extensive notes on it, at least from Ray Kroc's perspective, and then I scanned online Found a whole lot more than uh, what people would think they know about McDonald's after watching The Founder. Which I've had a lot of people say, uh, they find out I'm doing an episode on McDonald's and they're like, well, have you seen The Founder? I mean, I've seen The Founder, that's all I need to know. Uh, I just gotta tell you, there is a whole lot more to the story of McDonald's than what you see on The Founder. Now, The Founder is pretty exact with a lot of uh, facts and everything. There is just a few minor things here and there that are just uh, just to speed up for the film's sake. But the story of McDonald's is crazy. It's full of handshake agreements, brothels, dumpy theaters, world wars, burgers, fries, milkshakes, getting into debt, and clowns. So this is going to be good. McDonald's, or how the Australians call it, Macca's, is a place the majority of us have some deep, fond memories from childhood, eating, playing on their playground, or on their play place later on in the years, and I remember my first McNuggets, and, you know, I may have a weird taste, but my go-to dipping sauce for the McNuggets is pure honey. Not barbecue sauce, not Szechuan sauce or whatever that is, um, just pure honey. And the problem with that is honey comes in a smaller tub than barbecue sauce or anything else. So I don't know. That's just something I've been stuck on and I've loved it ever since. So, you know, from the Big Macs to Quarter Pounders with Cheese to my dad's favorite, the McRib, everyone has their favorite go-to food from McDonald's. So, I've got my five real quick. My five favorites from McDonald's, Shamrock Shakes, Holiday Pies, Triple Cheeseburgers, Big Macs, 
and of course Chicken McNuggets. We kind of grow up and take all of these things for granted that they're there, you know, but you got to realize that there was a time when none of these things existed. The history of McDonald's really can't be told unless we talk about the three guys that really made McDonald's happen. All three guys came from meager backgrounds, two brothers, and a hardworking salesman that could envision things that not a lot of other people could envision. A dreamer, perhaps. So now, sit back, relax, and let's take a look at the history of McDonald's. McDonald's is a restaurant that is famous for serving hamburgers, fries, milkshakes, and other signature sandwiches that has made the fast food chain an icon since its creation in 1948. There are over 38,000 McDonald's restaurants in over 100 countries worldwide. McDonald's takes on the task of serving 69 million people around the world daily. And since the restaurant's existence... One out of every eight Americans have worked at a McDonald's. The history of McDonald's is very extensive. A lot of details, a lot of groundwork we have to cover. We're practically going to be digging through uh, two people's lives since their birth and also another person that is very well documented. And uh, since there's a lot of... uh, things I could research about it, we're going to cover it all. So uh, this is going to be a very lengthy but very concise uh, history of this company. So the history of McDonald's, it starts in the early 1900s with two brothers, Maurice, also known as Mac McDonald, born November 26, 1902, and Richard McDonald, as most people called him Dick McDonald, born February 16, 1909, to Patrick and Marguerite McDonald. Along with their parents and their three sisters, Mac and Dick McDonald were part of a poor family of Irish immigrants who found a place to settle in rural New Hampshire. Their father, Patrick, who worked in a shoe factory, worked in the factory for 42 years until he was laid off with no pension, which led to the McDonald brothers realizing that their area in New Hampshire didn't have much for them that would make a decent living or a great life. The McDonald brothers at a very early age focused on being millionaires. Richard McDonald at eight years old, determined to be rich, told his father that he was going to be a millionaire. 1926, with the help of a distant relative working in Hollywood, California at the time, Mac McDonald then decided to pack his bags and head west. The distant relative had connections with the booming movie industry and said he could hook the brothers up with jobs. Dick McDonald, after graduating high school in 1927, also moved to Hollywood to be with his brother and work on their dreams. Now living in Hollywood, the freshly implanted New Hampshire brothers worked as handymen, truck drivers, and set movers at Columbia Movie Studios on sets of various silent films at the time. 
They realized after getting paid $25 a week that it wasn't going to be enough to become the millionaires that they dreamed of being, and the fact that there was no future in the work that the brothers were doing as well. They decided to save as much money as they could and find a way to still stay in the movie business. Even though they were trying to save money, the McDonald brothers were still pretty much flat broke. And in 1930, they were hearing talks from other people in the film industry. And what these people were talking about was a ran-down movie theater about 20 miles outside of Los Angeles, California, called Mission Theater. With the combination of slow business and hardly making a profit, if any at all, the owner of the Mission Theater wanted to be out on the lease. So the brothers approached the owner of the Mission Theater and they said, Look, We don't have any money, but we will take on the lease. And if we happen to make money later on down the road, we'll sit down and we'll figure out a deal. And so that's how the McDonald brothers wound up running a movie theater. The Mission Theater had the capacity to seat 750 moviegoers, and the brothers also installed a snack bar as well. In 1931, the McDonald brothers then opened up the theater with a new name, The Beacon. It's Industrial Industries World Radio's debut album, Songs and Skits of Seasons 1 and 2. All the songs you heard in the episodes are all here, like the uplifting It's Gonna Be Okay. Check out the hot and hip Rap Song 2020. Wiener Balls. Rap Song 2020. Rap Song 2020. And don't forget the classic hit, Fart in Your Face. I want to fart on a guitar. I want to fart on a power bill. I want to fart on fresh fruit. I want to fart in your face. All of the best songs and skits from the first two seasons of IIWR are right here. Industrial Industries World Radio's Songs and Skits of Seasons 1 and 2. Check it out on Spotify, iTunes, and anywhere else you can stream and download music. As the beacon opened up in the first couple years of the Great Depression that was due to the major stock market crash of 1929, business was slow and it was just enough to keep things operating throughout the early to mid-1930s. With the brothers putting all of their money into the theater and not to much of any profit coming from it, they were always behind on monthly bills to keep the theater running. In extreme times, with the fears that the theater was going to be foreclosed on, the brothers would sometimes bury their silver in the backyard. Since this was in the middle of the Great Depression, a lot of the other area businesses around the Beacon Theater weren't making that much money either. The brothers noticed, though, when they'd opened up the front doors to the theater and looked outside, they saw that this root beer and hot dog stand on the corner was getting a lot of customers all the time. So after seven years of running a movie theater, the McDonald brothers saw that food sold a lot more than movie tickets. So, the Beacon Theater was sold off and the McDonald Brothers used the money from the sale of the Beacon to set their sights into getting into the food business. 
1937, the brothers at this time then opened a food stand called the Air Dome. It was an octagon-shaped food stand near the Monrovia Airport along Route 66. Hot dogs were the first things that were sold at the Air Dome, and then later hamburgers were added at the cost of 10 cents each, along with all-you-could-drink orange juice for 5 cents. Now, why all-you-can-drink orange juice? Well, they lived in an orange grove town, and there's an ample supply of oranges, so they had enough oranges to be able to supply all-you-could-drink orange juice. Being located in a town where the biggest appeal of the town was the racetrack, the brothers made quite a lot of business during the racing season, but as soon as the season was over, business got really slow. In 1940, due to the slow season being a factor, the McDonald brothers wanted to get away from their current location and move somewhere else, but they needed the money. So they looked to a bunch of different banks to try to get loans here and there, and almost every bank denied them except the Bank of America, which then granted the McDonald brothers $5,000. So with the $5,000 loan in hand, the two brothers moved the entire food stand 45 miles east to a working class town with a population of 100,000 called San Bernardino, California. And with this move came a huge overhaul of the menu with a total of 25 items, which was made of mostly barbecue and also a new name turning the food stand's name from the Air Dome to McDonald's Barbecue. The McDonald brothers didn't know anything about making barbecue, but after a few days of someone showing them the ropes of working a barbecue pit, they were set and they were on their way. Now at this period in time, drive-ins were a huge thing, very, very popular, and so McDonald's Barbecue was set on a corner lot with drive-in service. Now for those of you who don't know or may need a refresher on what a drive-in restaurant is. A drive-in restaurant is a restaurant you literally drive up to in your car and you'll park, and there's either a menu on a billboard that you could look off of to order, or a car hop, which is usually a waitress, a young woman will come, give you a menu to look over, and she'll take your order from your window of your car and get your order and bring it to you, and set the tray on the window of your car, and you will just uh, eat that way in your car. Now you could also walk up to the window and order your food and eat on a picnic bench as well. And so, for instance, Sonic Drive-In is a nationwide and modern-day version of a drive-in. Now, fun little fact, car hops sometimes would wear roller skates to speed up the service, and also it just looked cool. So at this point, this is when things started booming for the McDonald brothers, as they were making $40,000 a year from McDonald's barbecue. That's roughly about $700,000 in today's money. Now there are two demographics of customers who usually frequented a drive-in. There were the teenagers to the young men in their 20s, who were only there to flirt with the younger women who worked as car hops. And then there are also the working class families just wanting a cheap meal. And the McDonald brothers saw that the young working families were more of what they wanted to serve, more than the rowdy teenagers that were just there uh, wasting time. A fun little fact about the McDonald's barbecue drive-in is that the old uniforms from the Beacon Theater 
were reused by the car hops to wear while they were working. Even though the car hop business was a success, the McDonald brothers wanted to see more growth and were making plans for remodeling the business. As World War II ended, and in America approaching a new age based on how fast things could be serviced or food could be prepared, they realized they needed a quicker way to serve food. The brothers looked at the car hops, and they saw them as slow and unreliable, and they spent a lot of time flirting with the customers in order to get larger tips. They also looked at the menu and tallied up what sold the most, and what they realized from all of the barbecue sandwiches and everything else, it was the hamburgers that made the large part of the sales. So based on the large number of sales and how hamburgers were easily able to cook and make, they laid out their ideas and in October of 1948 closed down their drive-in to redesign this new version of the restaurant. Looking for full efficiency, they looked at how the Ford Model T was built with the Ford assembly line and turned their kitchen and cooking area to much like an assembly line. While construction and renovations were underway, the sign out front of the San Bernardino location read, Closed for alterations. Coming soon. The first one in America. The Drive-In Hamburger Bar. Owned and operated by McDonald Brothers. Dropping the word barbecue from their name, and now simply going by McDonald's, on December 12, 1948, the first McDonald's reopened to a fully new and redesigned look and feel. They dropped most of their menu items for a more simple menu, and this original menu consisted of six items. Hamburgers, cheeseburgers, potato chips, coffee, soft drinks, and apple pie. The 20 car hops were eliminated, which meant no waiting staff, and orders were taken and food was served at the counter, as there were self-serve areas with condiments and napkins and trash cans where customers could dispose of their own trash. Much like the past food stands the McDonald brothers had, this one also had no dining area and relied on the people driving up, getting out, and ordering from the counter. Along with all of these designs also came a mascot, a chubby man with a hamburger head with a chef's hat, and his name was Speedy, to represent the restaurant's quick service. As these redesigns and cuts happened, this made McDonald's able to sell their burgers for half as much as any other restaurant. A lot of people around this time thought the McDonald brothers were crazy for switching up their whole design of their restaurant. And at first, the customers really weren't that happy about the new restaurant. They would drive up, honk their horns and flash their lights, waiting for a car hop to come out, and then they just leave when they realized no one was going to come out. The first month of business for McDonald's was pitiful. It was just sad. It got so bad that they would have employees park their cars in front of the McDonald's to give it the look that there was a lot of people eating there and business was booming. The first couple months, with all their tactics to try to draw people in, it still failed. The brothers started talking to each other and said, hey, you know what, maybe this ain't gonna work out. Maybe let's just go back to barbecue in the drive-in. But as fate would have it, they decided to keep going with this idea. After about three months of being in business, they started to collect a few customers here and there. 
These consisted of cab drivers, sales clerks, and construction workers. And they liked eating at McDonald's because they loved the quickness and they could get their food and not have to wait so long while they're on their lunch break from their jobs. There was another factor that started making McDonald's take off is that the younger customers, the kids and teenagers, thought it was a neat idea to be able to order food themselves and get their order and carry their trays of food around and do things for themselves. All this slow but gradual collection of customers, it became a massive hit in the area to the point where the McDonald brothers were pulling in $100,000 a year. And so we're at 1949 and potato chips on the menu are now replaced with french fries and apple pies are now replaced with milkshakes. So as a quick recap of what the McDonald brothers actually did was they took their kitchen, made it into an assembly line, and instead of food taking 20 minutes to be served on, say, a lunch break or dinner, it took only one minute instead. September 1952, McDonald's was featured in American Restaurant Magazine with a picture of the restaurant stating, quote, the most revolutionary development in the restaurant industry in the past 50 years. With this article in the magazine, people from all over the United States came to try out McDonald's. The McDonald's brothers realized that the old octagon-shaped food stand was needing a special, unique look. Dick McDonald was looking at different shapes of buildings that other food stands had, and he really wasn't satisfied. He saw most of them as scrawny and small. And when he looked at the house he lived in with the big columns in the front, he drew up an idea of the restaurant with four columns, and then he said, ah, ah, that looks terrible. And then he made one with an arch going parallel with the building. And then he realized, ah, hey, that didn't look too bad. And then he drew two arches running along each side of the building. And then he realized that that look gave the building a lot of flair. After interviewing at least four different architects together, the brothers hired Stanley Clark Meston to work together to design a new building for McDonald's. Meston, with his assistant Charles Fish, found various ways to improve efficiency. They even drew out the exact measurements of every single piece of equipment they had in the kitchen in the tennis court in the backyard of the McDonald brothers' house. Besides the improvements, they gave McDonald's a more unique look compared to the other restaurants, as it had red and white tile along with stainless steel, colorful sheet metal, large panes of glass, white, red, yellow, and green neon lights that pulsed, and most of all, two 25-foot yellow arches made of sheet metal with neon trim. And even during the early stages of design, they called these two arches the Golden Arches. During the process of looking at how faster burgers could be made, the brothers looked at which condiments were used the most, and all came to the conclusion on what condiments would be the best, and they'd cut out the other condiments, but just kept them in case for special orders. As workers making the burgers at the time were using a wooden spoon to put condiments on three or four burgers at a time, it was a problem and Dick McDonald needed to find a way to solve it. So, as a kid, he remembered having peppermint patties and realized how every single peppermint patty had the same amount every single time. So, he went to a candy factory posing as a writer, saying he was going to do a story about the candy factory to figure this out. 
A woman at the candy factory took him to a marble table where they made peppermint patties and showed Dick this metal cone with a hole at the bottom with a stick inside that whenever you'd lift the stick for a certain amount of time, that was the way everything came out evenly. Dick McDonald knew that this was the key for the mustard and ketchup being added to the burgers. He then came back and asked a machinist that did experimental work for the McDonald brothers if he could find a way to make a funnel that would give the right amount each time. Because if the stick was lifted too much, there'd be more. The same as if it was lifted less, which in turn would give less of the condiment. So he figured the best way was to make a trigger to make the condiment dispenser give the right amount every time. Still, as Richard McDonald's dream of becoming a millionaire by 50 years old was still a bit off, they started getting into franchising the Golden Arch design and the system. By May 1953, Neil Fox, who owned a string of gas stations up and down the coast of California, he became the first franchisee, opening his McDonald's with the Golden Arches design in Phoenix, Arizona. Later, a second franchisee was from Neil Fox's brother-in-law, Roger Williams and Bud Landon. Williams and Landon opened their McDonald's August 18, 1953 in Downey, California. This location is known as the oldest surviving McDonald's as it stayed true to its original look and it's never had to comply with any changes from the McDonald's Corporation created by Ray Kroc because this was franchised out by the McDonald brothers. So they were under a totally different contract. So this is the oldest authentic looking McDonald's from back in the day. As they knew their restaurant was going to be big, they wanted to quit franchising and build McDonald's restaurants up and down the coast of California. But after looking at this non-franchise way of doing things, the brothers realized that they would have to take care of all of these restaurants themselves and it'd be a lot more trouble than it was worth. The brothers then hired a franchise agent, Bill Tansy, and he sold 21 franchises, and from these franchise sales, nine more McDonald's restaurants opened. But then Bill ran into some health problems and had to pull out of helping McDonald's. Now, as many people who have any amount of an idea of who Ray Kroc is, you know we really can't tell the history of McDonald's unless he is brought into the picture. So, at this point, Ray Kroc, he was the exclusive salesman of the multi-mixer. And the multi-mixer is a milkshake mixer that can mix five milkshakes at once. So, as he noticed in his sales that McDonald's had ordered eight multi-mixers for one restaurant, he flew out to visit the McDonald's to see how they were running things. And he was truly impressed. So now we're going to dig into Ray Kroc's life and give a brief but uh, really not so brief history of Ray Kroc from his beginnings to where he was in life at this point. And from here on out, McDonald's will then skyrocket into what it is today, all because of Ray Kroc. Raymond Albert Kroc was born on October 5th, 1902, to the couple Lewis and Rose Kroc, which Lewis immigrated to the United States from the Czech Republic. Lewis Kroc loved baseball and worked for Western Union since the age of 12, 
ultimately becoming the superintendent. Ray's mother Rose, who was born in the United States, was a housewife and taught piano lessons. As Ray Kroc grew up in Oak Park, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago, Illinois, as the oldest child, Ray learned how to play the piano from his mother's lessons, which led him to play the organ at his church. He also enjoyed playing baseball with his friends and working odd jobs at grocery stores and later having a lemonade stand outside of his parents' house. Between 8th grade and the first year of high school, Ray worked at his uncle's drugstore and he learned how to make people more comfortable with a smile and a friendly salesman conversation and making people purchase more food than they originally came in for. Attending high school in Oak Park, Illinois, Ray grew to be highly intelligent. Not the type that would study and find books entertaining, but Ray was always imagining things and thinking of a way to make them happen. He was always imagining things, stuck in his head most of the time, to the point where his mother and his friends gave him a nickname, calling him Danny Dreamer. As he had a lot of confidence in himself, he was superior during debates at school, as he was always able to convince anyone to see his point of view. In the summer of 1916, when Ray was 14 years old, he saved up all the money he made from working other jobs, and him and his two friends all put in $100 each and opened up a music shop that was $25 a month. And they sold sheet music, along with small instruments like ocarinas and ukuleles. Ray would dress up in a sharp suit to impress the ladies passing by, hoping to draw them in to sell some sheet music that he'd play on the piano. But after a few months with little to no sales, Ray and his two friends cut their losses, sold their remaining stock to a larger music store, and split. In 1917, Ray now at 15 years old, and in his sophomore year of high school, the only thing he liked about school was debating, and always being the underdog in the argument. Between sophomore and junior year high school, Ray sold coffee beans along with a few other things and realized he was done with school and dropped out. As the United States had entered World War I at this time, everyone was talking about going over and helping the cause. Ray knew that that's where he wanted to be. He lied about his age to get into and join the Red Cross, signing up as an ambulance driver to be shipped overseas. While in training at the camp in Connecticut, he came across another kid who lied about his age to get in. Everyone in the training camp saw this kid as kind of odd, because when everybody else would be out in their off time, he would stay back at the camp and just keep drawing. He was none other than Walter Elias or as most people know him as, Walt Disney. And as Walter got assigned to learn how to repair motors and drive cars on rough terrain, he wound up getting influenza and was sent home. Ray Kroc, however, he never got to be sent overseas, as the war ended before he was assigned. And then he was just sent back home to Chicago, where he went back to school, only to drop out and start working in the real world instead. In 1919, Ray, now 17 years old, by the request of his parents, went back to school, but then dropped out again after one semester, and he started selling ribbon novelties and playing piano. In fun fact, he once played at a brothel, and if you read his book, Grinding It Out, uh, the one woman he describes in that book is just, the way he describes her is just hilarious. I definitely recommend checking the book out. 
In the summer of 1919, Ray gave up selling ribbon novelties, and he started playing in a band at Paw Paw Lake at a popular summer resort called Edgewater. Along the lake were hotels and businesses that would have visitors that would come over to Edgewater's pavilion to attend dances and see the band play. This is when Ray met his future wife, Ethel Fleming. She was the daughter of an owner of one of the hotels near the lake. When Ray and Ethel first met, they hit it off perfectly, and after that, they were inseparable. Early 1920, Ray's father got a promotion at his job to work for ADT, and with this new job, the Kroc family had to move to New York. Ray was wanting to marry Ethel, and he didn't want to move. But he wound up moving anyways to New York, and he worked the cashier's cage at the Wooster Thomas office. And one morning, Ray shows up for work, and he sees that the office is boarded up, and there's a posting stating that it had gone bankrupt. Ray, out of a job, and happy to have a reason to go back home, Ray left to go back to Chicago, and his family followed soon after as they realized they weren't really happy in New York. 1922, Ray, ready to marry Ethel, his father gave him some advice that if he wanted to marry a woman, then he better have a steady job. So Ray looked, and he saw that these things were preventing infection during the Great American Flu epidemic of 1918, and they were quite innovative and getting more popular. So he got into selling paper cups, and after getting hired at the Lily Tulip Paper Cup Company, Ray Kroc and Ethel Fleming got married. 1923, Ray now 21 years old, being very personable with his customers and always checking up on them, it led him to be the top salesman for Lily Tulip. And at this time, Ray, young and hardworking, he really started showing how much of a hard worker he was. He'd be waking up early every morning, and by 7 a.m., he'd be hitting the soda fountains in the area, and then by 5.30 p.m., he would go to his other job for radio station WGES, which had a studio in a hotel a few blocks away from where Ray and Ethel lived. During the evenings, Ray would play the piano at the radio station from 6 to 8, leave to go home and get dinner, and then come back to the station to play from 11 p.m. to 2 a.m. Go home, then by 7 a.m., he'd be back out on the street selling paper cups. This nearly around-the-clock schedule of work started to strain the relationship between Ray and his wife Ethel. Things got less tense, though, when Ray started getting time off on Saturdays to spend with his wife. October 1924, Ray and Ethel had their first and only child, a baby girl named Marilyn. Spring 1925, Ray struck up a friendly chat with the owner of a German restaurant about cars. Ray wound up getting the account to sell cups to this restaurant, and this made Ray enough money to buy a new Ford Model T right off the lot. Now, during the cold winters in Chicago, this made the paper cup business slow down. And at this time, Ray saw real estate in Florida booming, almost comparable to the gold rush. So Ray, taking a chance at it, was granted a five-month leave of absence and moved to Florida. Ray quickly found a job selling real estate for W.F. Morang & Son. Ray was legitimate, but the boom seemed too good to be true. And it wasn't true, as the boom ended and suddenly business went to a complete stop. Now freshly out of the real estate business, Ray thought of going back to Chicago. 
but someone overheard him messing with a piano in his house and got him into playing in the Willard Robinson Orchestra. After a while of playing in the nightclub, Ray was making $110 a week, which got Ray to rent out a much larger apartment for his wife and his sister-in-law. As this was the time of prohibition on alcohol, and the nightclub Ray played at illegally served alcohol, it eventually got busted from cops getting past security too quick before people could hide their drinks. Everyone including Ray got thrown in jail. Three hours later though, Ray was released and took a look at his life in Florida, and his wife at this point was homesick, and his sister-in-law was dating a man and living her own life in Florida, so Ray and Ethel and their daughter Marilyn headed back to Chicago. 1927, Ray chucked playing the piano on the side to make some extra money, and he focused solely on selling paper cups for Lily Tulip, and he started selling smaller paper cups to street vendors and Larger cups to concession stands at beaches and zoos, everywhere you could think of. In 1930, Ray putting in hard work selling paper cups, he snagged a deal selling paper cups to the Walgreen Drug Company. And after snagging this account, Ray went on to get other larger business accounts as well. And through the 1930s, even with the economic depression at an all-time high, Ray was so successful at selling paper cups that he was able to buy a brand new Buick, hire a secretary, and also have a live-in maid at his home. 1932, Croc was surrounded by all kinds of things that were growing and showing up everywhere as he sold paper cups. And one of the things that he saw were these little stone castles all over the state of Illinois. These castles were set up by an engineer and a customer of Ray Kroc's, Earl Prince. Prince called these ice cream shops Prince Castle Ice Cream Parlors. In Michigan, Ray had another customer who was making a new form of milkshake that was a lot thicker and colder. It was a more frozen style of milkshake that wasn't as runny as the milkshakes at the time. Walter Fredenhagen owned the Prince Castles in Ray Kroc's area. Ray mentioned this new form of milkshake to Walter, but Walter said it was, you know, just another thing that he just didn't want to deal with. Ray, after some more talks, he finally convinced Walter and Earl Prince to check out the milkshakes in Michigan. After the two saw the milkshakes for themselves, they knew they had to start their own version of the thicker and colder milkshake. As they set out to make their version of this milkshake, they realized that the one spindle mixers would always burn out as they would repeatedly be making milkshakes. And that's when Earl Prince invented the multi-mixer. It was a milkshake mixer with six spindles that could make six milkshakes at once. It was originally six spindles, but then over time, they were realizing messes happened when there was six. It was just too much. So they cut it down to five spindles instead, and that's what became the standard. Ray was ecstatic to show off the multi-mixer to Lily Tulip Cup Company, and they loved it. And they signed a contract for Sanitary Cup and Service Corporation to be the exclusive distributor of the multi-mixer. But when Lily Tulip headquarters in New York caught wind of this, they frowned upon it stating that they were only a paper cup company. That was it. Nothing more. Ray Kroc being disappointed about this, Earl Prince told Ray that he should just quit Lily Tulip and work for him exclusively selling the multi-mixer. 
But there was still the contract that Lily Tulip had with Sanitary Cup for the multi-mixer. Croc angrily yelled, and his boss worked out a deal finally where they would own 60% of Prince Castle sales, and Croc would own 40%. 1938, sales were pretty slow for the multi-mixers starting out, but all the while still, Ray was thinking of a way to get the 60% of ownership from Sanitary Cup, and inevitably end up having full ownership. Ray had a small office in Chicago. The secretary did most of the office work as Ray was always out traveling and trying to sell the multi-mixer to every soda fountain and restaurant that he could. In 1940, after two years of selling the multi-mixer and it was slowly gaining some steam, Ray thought it was time to own it completely. His old boss replied $68,000 in cash. Ray increased his mortgage to be able to pay the $12,000 in cash up front, and his boss let him pay the rest of the $56,000 off over five years, plus interest. With his choice of work and getting into this debt, this only worsened the marriage between Ray and Ethel. It was probably the worst time to take on this debt because in December 1941, the United States entered World War II and there was a restriction on the use of copper. With copper needed to wind motors for the multi-mixers and Earl Prince unable to come up with any other inventions that didn't have restrictions, Ray found himself out of work, but he quickly found a new job selling malted milk powder in paper cups called Malta Plenty. Late 1941 until the end of the war in 1945, Ray selling Malta Plenty was able to keep his life afloat and also continue paying off his debt to Lily Tulip to now he had full ownership of Prince Castle sales in 1945. As business boomed after the war, Ray was pushing his multi-mixers to Tasty Freezes, Dairy Queens, and A&W Root Beer Drive-Ins. The late 1940s were great years for Ray, selling on average 5,000 multi-mixers a year, and one year selling 8,000 multi-mixers at $150 a piece. Early 1950s though, Ray's sales were starting to look threatened, as Walgreens drugstores stated that they were removing soda fountains from their stores. Many more places soon followed as this was the time when suburbia was growing and as soda fountains were popular in the cities, they were less and less frequented and this caused Ray's customers to start dwindling down. Competition from other companies selling their version of multi-mixers didn't help either. So as the multi-mixer was looking like it was going to hit a dead end soon, Ray was looking for a new and innovative product to sell that would have the same great effect just like the multi-mixer had. Ray thought he had something when one of his salesmen turned him to his neighbor who had built a kitchen table with benches that would fold up into the wall. They called it the Fold-A-Nook. It soon turned out though that the salesman who turned Ray onto it was trying to con him in some kind of way and this made Ray fire him along with not pursuing the Fold-A-Nook anymore. So, 1954, while Ray was on the hunt trying to find the next big thing that he could sell, he kept getting calls here and there asking about those mixers that the McDonald brothers have. After these calls and hearing a bit more buzz, Ray looked up the orders from this one restaurant in San Bernardino and seen that they ordered multi-mixers in bulk. 
It shocked him when he saw that the one store alone, this McDonald's restaurant, needed eight multi-mixers. So Ray, wondering why a restaurant would need so many multi-mixers, he decided to fly out to this place. He got to San Bernardino early in the morning, right before the McDonald's opened. He passed by it and saw it was just a small drive-in. No seats inside, and customers had to walk up to the window to order. Ray watched as the first cars pulled up, which were the workers, as they got ready to open up the McDonald's. The workers were all dressed up in clean-cut white button-down shirts and white pants, wearing paper hats. Some get in the kitchen ready, and the others head into the back storage area, running up sacks of potatoes on carts. A combination of Ray seeing the uniforms and all these people working efficiently impressed him right away. When 11 a.m. hit, McDonald's opened for business for the day, and people started filling in and lining up almost instantly. Customers who had gotten their food were eating it like crazy. It was insane for Ray to see how much the people were eating up the food. At this time, most drive-ins had the motorcycle and teenager, rough-and-tumble kind of crowd, but McDonald's had this family-oriented image, which Ray also liked. Looking at the people lining up and the others in the parking lot eating their food in their cars, Ray chatted up with some of the customers and he found out that most people liked McDonald's because of their fries and hamburgers, how great they tasted, and also that most of their food was about half as much as any other restaurant. When the crowds finally died down around 2.30pm, Ray then approached Mac and Dick McDonald, and they were more than happy to talk to Ray. The brothers referred to Ray as Mr. Multimixer. This conversation led to a dinner that night where Ray learned how the system of the restaurant worked step by step and how to prepare the food on its menu and its prices. Cheeseburgers were 19 cents, hamburgers were 15 cents, soft drinks were 10 cents, milkshakes 20 cents, and coffee was 5 cents. After the dinner, the brothers took Ray to see the architect who was working on the new design of the McDonald's. This new design had yellow arches and neon lights. Croc in the back of his mind saw that there was a few flaws with it, but yet again he was still amazed. After the dinner, and Ray was back in his hotel room, laying in bed, he was sitting there thinking of having McDonald's restaurants coast to coast in the country. More importantly, each of these restaurants having eight multi-mixers in each one, which in turn would make him rich. At this point, Croc had no intentions of owning McDonald's. He was just thinking of expanding McDonald's restaurants so he could sell more multi-mixers. So here we have Ray Croc. He's 52 years old. He's suffering from a slew of different health problems, from diabetes to arthritis. He realized that the multi-mixer sales were dwindling and he had to do something about this. Seeing McDonald's and how well they were doing, he had to find some way to make something happen. The McDonald brothers, they knew right off the bat that Ray was a great salesman, highly aggressive and motivated, but he also had a great personality and was a truly hard worker. So the next day, Ray showed back up to McDonald's and he studied how the burgers were grilled and more importantly how the french fries were made as they were the best fries that he and everyone else eating at McDonald's had ever had. After the lunch rush on the second day, 
Ray and the two McDonald brothers were in the McDonald brothers' office, and Ray gave this big speech about how McDonald's is a gold mine and they needed to strike and get more restaurants out there. After Ray gave this big enthusiastic speech, it was met with dead silence. Mac McDonald broke the silence and told Ray that they liked the way they were living, and they didn't intend to complicate things by opening up even more McDonald's restaurants, as it would just give them more headaches than anything. Ray then replied back to the McDonald brothers saying that they didn't have to deal with it if they were to hire somebody to take care of the running and open up the new places for them. The McDonald brothers then asked Ray who would want to bother doing that. Ray looked at himself and he said, I could. So after this meeting, Ray was back on a plane heading towards Chicago with a signed contract from the McDonald brothers to be their franchise agent. The McDonald brothers and Ray's contract was that it was $1,900 for the franchise fee, along with Ray Kroc getting 1.9% of gross sales of any franchises he brought on board, and the McDonald brothers would get 0.5% of the gross sales. At home, the McDonald's contract put more ice on Ray and Ethel's marriage, as Ray was now focusing almost 100% into McDonald's, which he had to in order to make a living for his family. In 1955, Ray started working as the franchise agent for McDonald's and having the exclusive rights to sell the McDonald's Brothers method, and with that, he founded the McDonald's System Incorporated. On April 15, 1955, with the help of a friend, Art Jacobs, Ray went in 50-50 with Art to build their McDonald's in the Chicago suburb of Des Plaines, Illinois, seven minutes away from Ray's home. The first year of Ray's McDonald's was filled with kinks, even during the building process when he needed a basement in the McDonald's in which the original blueprints of McDonald's didn't have. From temperature problems, to keeping the store well ventilated, to the fries not coming out like the ones that Ray had tried at the McDonald Brothers store, there was all kinds of problems. So after three months, Ray had his own system down of having fans on the potatoes to make sure that the fries came out like they should. So dealing with these problems, after building the restaurant, Ray was made aware of two things after the agreement was done. One was that the brothers had sold the name McDonald's to 10 other stores in California and Arizona. The areas with those McDonald's stores were off limits, but the rest of the United States to franchise out stores were all Ray's. And the second thing is that the McDonald brothers sold the franchise rights of McDonald's in Cook County, Illinois, where Ray's McDonald's was located, to an ice cream company. So Ray had to buy out the rights from the company for $25,000. $20,000 more than what the ice cream company had originally bought it for. Ray struggled to get the money together, but luckily he still had money generated from Prince Castle's sales. So this is what ruffled the feathers between Ray and the McDonald brothers, as the brothers never mentioned to Ray that they sold the rights to the ice cream company prior.
So we're getting ahead of ourselves a bit. Let's go back to about a month after Ray opened his McDonald's. May 1955 saw Harry Sonneborn come into the fold. He had recently resigned as vice president of finance for Tasty Freeze, which Harry had ordered multi-mixers from Ray before while working at Tasty Freeze. He noticed how Ray had a good thing going with his McDonald's and called Ray wanting to be a part of it. Ray knew that he needed help franchising McDonald's, but he was spread thin and he knew he couldn't afford anybody. Regardless, Harry met Ray in Ray's office. Harry, 39 years old at the time, walked in standing at 6 feet tall, lanky, but disciplined and serious. As they discussed the high risks of franchising on a larger scale, Ray told Harry at the end of the meeting that he couldn't afford to hire him. Harry then said he'll figure out the lowest amount he could take as a salary to support his family and bring it to Ray, hoping to be hired. When Harry came back, he told Ray he could work for $100 a week. Harry was hired on the spot as executive. With his knowledge of the ins and outs of everything legal and financial, he became a valuable asset to McDonald's. Ray looked at McDonald's as a family-friendly place, so he made sure franchises would not have payphones, jukeboxes, or vending machines, which would create an environment where people would hang out longer than it would take for them to eat their meals and leave. By the end of 1955, Kroc opened two more McDonald's locations, which grossed $235,000 in sales. At every location, Ray used the McDonald Brothers format and also used the motto, If you have time to lean, you have time to clean, to all of his workers, including himself, to make sure the restaurants were cleaned spotlessly. 1956, eight McDonald's restaurants were opened, and Ray wanted the franchise to be more than just a name that all kinds of different people used. He wanted to make sure that every McDonald's was the same. So basically, a McDonald's in Chicago would have the same exact food and appearance as it would in New York City or in Santa Claus, Indiana. Ray realized that he had to make a development business where all the McDonald's would be under one marketing program nationwide. But for all of that to happen, hiring people to supervise and make sure each store operated smoothly, took money. So the solution for the money problem and to get this ball rolling, it was all thought up by Harry Sonneborn with the Franchise Realty Corporation. It was designed only to hold McDonald's real estate. And this company signed leases and mortgages for the land and buildings, passing the cost onto the franchisee with a 20 to 40% markup. And with this, they lowered the franchise fee to $950. Franchise Realty started with $1,000 up front, and Harry turned it into $170 million worth of real estate. This became the biggest decision financially in McDonald's history, which has made the restaurant to be as big as it is, as this same model is still in place today. So as this happened, Ray, Harry, and the Secretary June worked like crazy around the clock in these early years, feeding this baby of a restaurant to grow into the giant that it was destined to become. With Franchise Realty up and running, needing someone that could handle corporate operations, Ray thought back to a 23-year-old Fred Turner. Fred was part of a family group wanting to be a franchisee, 
And while Fred was waiting for his family group to figure out where they'd want to put their McDonald's, Fred took up Ray's offer to learn how McDonald's operated at Ray's Des Plaines store. Right away, Fred was a natural leader, making sure all things clicked in the store. When the family group fell through and a franchise store wasn't built, Fred was then sent to be a manager at the McDonald's in Chicago. And as soon as McDonald's needed somebody to handle operations, Fred was pulled by Ray to work for his newly appointed position. January 1957, Fred Turner started work on operations of all McDonald's stores for $475 a month. And throughout this time, Ray and Harry were butting heads a lot, but both still shared the same dream of making McDonald's huge. Harry, the more scholar and analytical, and Ray, the more enthusiastic and people-pleasing type, June Martino, the secretary, had to be the cushion between the two to keep McDonald's from imploding. Meanwhile, Fred Turner had figured out the best shape and size of the hamburger patty. One-tenth of a pound, 19% fat content, all beef, and no fillers. By 1958, there were 34 McDonald's restaurants, and Fred Turner was handling all of the food and supply purchasing for McDonald's. 1959, the first McDonald's location in Hawaii opens up in Honolulu. Harry Sonneborn became the president and CEO of McDonald's, and also they ran into trouble as one man planning to be a franchisee started building McDonald's stores on land he didn't have the titles for. There's not much more info on the man and what happened to him, but Ray, who at the time had a net worth of $90,000, was having to borrow $400,000 to pay the mess left behind from this man. So after this $400,000 ordeal, Ray got the idea to build 10 McDonald's stores ran strictly by the company, and through Sonneborn, three insurance companies came forward to lend $1.5 million. This lended money was in exchange for 22.5% of McDonald's stock. The money from these insurance companies made McDonald's grow like wildfire, and it gave the McDonald brothers back in California a nice chunk of change. In 1960, the first company store was opened in Columbus, Ohio. Ray wanted to bring in new ideas to further grow McDonald's, but due to his contract, he had to get any changes that he wanted done approved by the McDonald brothers. Ray was curious to see how the McDonald's stores in California were running, so he sent Fred Turner to check it out. Fred came back to report that the original San Bernardino location was the only real legit McDonald's. The other locations had the burgers and fries, but along with it they were serving pizza, and another one was serving burritos and enchiladas. The problem with this was all these extra menu items drug the quality of the hamburgers down, which in turn gave the other McDonald's restaurants a bad image. Ray brought it up to the brothers, but the brothers just brushed it off and really just didn't care. Ray wanting to be in control of all the McDonald's and the McDonald's brand, he was mad, but he couldn't do anything about it, so at the moment he just had to deal with it. August 30th, 1960, the 200th McDonald's location was opened in Knoxville, Tennessee, and the first Alaska McDonald's location opens in the city of Juneau. In 1961, in Minneapolis, Ray was having a dinner with a new franchisee, 
and Ray met a married woman who was playing the organ. This was Joni Smith, and he fell in love right away. And small world, because it just so happened that the franchisee was hiring Joni Smith's husband as the manager for his new McDonald's restaurant. Now, Ray being a married man, going to see the McDonald's in Minneapolis was a great excuse to see Joni. When Ray would visit Minneapolis, he'd make small talk with Joni, he'd play piano as she'd play organ, doing duets, and they'd spend a lot of time talking on the phone, long conversations at night as Ray would tell Joni all of his big dreams about McDonald's and what the future could hold. During one of these long phone conversations, Ray proposed to Joni that they both should divorce from their significant others and get married. As Joan and Ray both felt the same way about each other, Ray put the ball in Joan's court and divorced Ethel right away. Through divorcing Ethel, Ray wound up giving Ethel the house, the car, all of the insurance, and $30,000 a year for life. The only thing that Ray kept was his share of McDonald's. To pay for all of the legal fees through the divorce, Ray wound up selling Prince Castle sales for $150,000. Ray saw this as a small price to pay to be able to marry Joan and finally be happy. When Ray told Joan the news, Joan was happy, but Joan hit Ray with the bad news that she didn't divorce her husband and she needed more time to think about it. So Ray, with a change of plans of not marrying Joan right away, he focused all of his time into McDonald's even more. With Mac McDonald's health declining and Dick McDonald wanting to retire, Ray was now determined more than ever, and he was also tired of always having to go through the McDonald brothers for approval of anything at all. So Ray asked the brothers how much it would cost to buy them out completely. The brothers came up with a figure of $2.7 million in cash only. The brothers came up with this figure because $2.7 million meant both brothers would get a million dollars each in cash after taxes. The obvious problem with this was that Ray didn't have $2.7 million in cash, so he asked the brothers to finance instead, but the brothers were adamant about the $2.7 million in cash only. So Ray needing cash to buy out the McDonald brothers, and the insurance companies that they got money from previously being tapped out, Ray and Harry found John Bristol. He was a financial advisor to various colleges and institutions, and that led them to get the money. So from 12 educational and other kinds of institutions, from Princeton University to Howard University to even the Ford Foundation, Ray got the $2.7 million to pay off the McDonald brothers and to be the sole owner of McDonald's. After the deal was done, Ray had the thought that the original San Bernardino location was his as well. The brothers went back on their deal, which was through a handshake agreement, and wound up keeping their original restaurant. Ray wanted this spot because it was a very popular spot and it drew a lot of money. It was a great location. And to not have it after paying the brothers off and owning the McDonald's brand, it got to him. Ray Kroc not usually being a vengeful man, he went to the brothers and made it aware that he owned the name McDonald's. And the brothers were legally made to change the name of their restaurant, McDonald's, to the Big M instead. 
With Ray Kroc now completely owning McDonald's, the overall image of the restaurants kept some original things and brought in some new things as well. The early McDonald's mascot, Speedy, with the hamburger head, was cut, and a new McDonald's logo featuring the golden arches was brought in. On the business side of things, Ray made it to where a franchisee could only own one store at a time. This was done so no one owned one whole territory and gave Ray Kroc more control over McDonald's altogether. Ray also sold all the supplies to the restaurants at a decent price and made sure that every franchise was making a decent profit. So jumping out of the business side of things and back into Ray's personal life, later on in 1961, Joni called Ray after she thought it over and she gave him the news that she couldn't go through with divorcing her husband. So after this, Ray packed his bags and he left Chicago for California. The first couple of years in California for Ray were lonely, and he spent a lot of time in his house just filling it up with a bunch of stuff. And it was at this point that he saw reports of the McDonald's stores, and he noticed that Joni and her husband opened their own McDonald's in Rapid City, South Dakota. Now, bouncing back into the business side of things in Ray's life, which he had plenty to keep his mind occupied, as there was a franchisee in Cincinnati who was having problems selling on Fridays, as the city had a huge population of Catholics who at the time couldn't eat meat on Fridays. The competing restaurant in town, Big Boy, had a fish sandwich on Fridays that got all of the business. So this franchisee mentioned that they should also serve a fish sandwich at McDonald's. Ray didn't like this idea at first, but he was okay with it after he was able to settle with what kind of fish would be served. And after an employee added a slice of cheese to the sandwich, it just set it off completely, and Ray gave this fish sandwich the green light to be served. And Ray named this sandwich the filet fish So Ray, looking at this idea of having a sandwich with no meat in it, he wanted to give the filet fish some friendly competition. So Ray came up with the hula burger. And the hula burger was a piece of grilled pineapple with two slices of cheese on a bun. So starting on Good Friday in 1962 in select locations, the hula burger and the filet fish were put on the menu. The results from the sales of the hula burger and the filet fish on Good Friday were filet fish 350 to the hula burger at just 6. Needless to say, the hula burger was taken off the menu shortly after. Also in 1962, just to stick it to the McDonald brothers, Ray Kroc built a McDonald's just a block away from their restaurant, the Big M. 1963, Ray fell in love with a woman by the name of Jane Green. She was a really sweet and kind woman who also worked as the secretary for the movie star John Wayne. Jane and Ray would go on dates to the point where it was almost every night, till just after two weeks of dating, they got married. 1963 also saw the new McDonald's mascot, in which he came in the form of a clown named Ronald McDonald. The Hamburger Happy Clown. He's known all around the world with bright red hair, wearing a yellow jumpsuit and red and white striped clothes underneath, and wearing big red clown shoes. 
He first appeared in three TV commercials, and his appearance in these early years were much different than now. The first incarnation had Ronald with mangy hair, wearing a tray of food on top of his head like a hat, and the face makeup was about the same with the red and white. These first commercials would be about Ronald McDonald bumping into kids and all of them going to McDonald's. As each of these commercials would end with Ronald McDonald skipping and jumping with cheerful music playing in the background. The origin story of Ronald McDonald is mildly disputed, as McDonald's never flat out said who created the character, but most evidence points to the man who first played Ronald McDonald, Willard Scott. Willard Scott played as Bozo the Clown on television from 1959 to 1962. Bozo the Clown was extremely popular at the time, and when Scott was done being Bozo in 1963, he claimed that McDonald's contacted him requesting to play as a hamburger-happy clown in three television commercials. The original Ronald McDonald look would last until 1966, when McDonald's hired circus performer Coco the Clown to redesign Ronald McDonald's image to his classic look that people see today. In 1965, Ray Kroc made himself president of McDonald's, and he created Hamburger University. It was where franchise owners would be able to attend a training course in Elk Grove, Illinois, where graduates of the course would receive a degree in hamburgerology with a minor in french fries. Every McDonald's was given strict rules on the cooking procedures, size of the products, packaging, and so on that food at McDonald's was the same all across the country. Ray started expanding on McDonald's restaurants, focusing on opening new restaurants in the suburbs of large cities, close to where the majority of most people lived. In April 1965, McDonald's was getting huge, but as money came in, it kept going back out to feed the growth, and not much money for extra costs for other endeavors. So this was the factor into why they went public, selling shares of the company at $22.50 a piece. And in just a few weeks of going public, the McDonald's stock shot up to $49 a share. And also in 1965, this is when McDonald's switched from having employees cut potatoes to make french fries to using frozen french fries instead. And by the end of 1965, McDonald's had 700 restaurants in 44 states. And on Thanksgiving 1966, during the Macy's Day Parade, the new redesigned Ronald McDonald makes his television debut on the McDonald's float, featuring the McDonald's All-American Band. By the end of 1966, McDonald's saw Harry Sonneborn and Ray Kroc coming to a head as Harry was having health problems and he was spending more time away from the office and more time with his wife in Alabama. Ray was wanting to keep pushing McDonald's and expand it even further than it already was. But Harry had other plans after talking to other financial buddies and he thought a recession in the coming year would doom the company. So Harry put a suspension on all existing plans of constructing new McDonald's stores.
At the McDonald's office, there was a rift. It was either you were Team Sonneborn or you were Team Croc, in which this also didn't make the environment any better. After a few meetings and trying to deal with each other, it inevitably came to blows and Harry Sonneborn resigned as president from McDonald's and then he sold all of his stock in McDonald's as he felt that it would be worth nothing come 1967. And after that, he moved to Alabama. Along with Harry Sonneborn leaving McDonald's, a few more executives on Harry's side left as well. Ray Kroc then took over as president and chairman of the board and took off the suspension and started constructing new McDonald's restaurants. Morale in the office was low, but it slowly got better. One person in particular who had really low morale was Fred Turner. But over dinner one night with Ray Kroc, Ray had told Fred that he will be president within the year, after Ray did some much-needed tying up of loose ends. January 1967, prices of hamburgers were raised from 15 cents to 18 cents. It was this year when one of the most famous sandwiches in all of history was created, the Big Mac. It was created by a franchisee from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Jim Delegati. The Big Mac consists of two beef patties, a special sauce, lettuce, pickles, American cheese, onions, and a three-piece sesame seed bun. One for the top, one for the bottom, and a slim bun piece in the middle. First debuting in Delegati's Uniontown, Pennsylvania location, it sold for 45 cents and went under two different names that didn't work out. One name was the Aristocrat, which people had a hard time saying, and the other name was the Blue Ribbon Burger. It was then named Big Mac by a 21-year-old advertising secretary named Esther Rose. Sales of the Big Mac got huge, and by 1968, the Big Mac was sold in all McDonald's restaurants in the U.S. The Big Mac was introduced to the nation as a meal disguised as a sandwich. So, around this time in McDonald's history, Ray Kroc was being called the founder of McDonald's. And there's a lot of people that will say, well, the McDonald brothers are the founders of McDonald's. Not Ray Kroc. He came in and he stole it. Well, as you hear in this story, he didn't exactly steal it. He put himself in over his eyes in debt. But I do say that he is the founder of McDonald's as everyone knows it, as the world knows it today. He may have not founded how the food was prepared or the original concept, but he did found the McDonald's Corporation. And needless to say, if Ray Kroc never came across McDonald's, McDonald's would have never been as big as it is today. And speaking of the McDonald brothers, let's turn our sights over to them, as they were still running the Big M, but they lost so much business as Ray Kroc put up the McDonald's a block away. And this led to the McDonald brothers selling the Big M and quitting the food business for good. Mac McDonald wound up getting married and Dick McDonald moved back to New Hampshire and he married his childhood sweetheart after both being divorced from other people. And for the rest of their lives, neither Dick or Mac had any children of their own. 
1967, Canada opens its first McDonald's in Richmond, British Columbia. And the first McDonald's restaurant in a territory of the United States opens in San Juan, Puerto Rico. 1968, Fred Turner is appointed as president of McDonald's. And June Martino, the original McDonald's secretary, retires. And she leaves the company extremely rich as she kept her McDonald's stock and became an honorary director. Ray Kroc, after leaving the seat as president of McDonald's, was now chairman of the board and having time to spend elsewhere besides McDonald's 24-7. Ray Kroc's job now was thinking of new ways to develop the restaurant. He went to California to take things a little slower and as fate would have things, it didn't get too calm as Ray was invited to a convention in San Diego to speak. Ray then noticed that Joan Smith... The woman he had an undying love for was on the list of attendees. The night before the date he was scheduled to speak, Ray was driven to a dinner in his Rolls Royce. Seeing Joan again, Ray was just as excited to see her as he did when they first met, and they both wound up sitting next to each other at the table. After dinner, Ray invited people to his hotel suite to carry on the party. As Ray played piano and everybody had drinks, People slowly left to go to their rooms as the night went on. Even Joan's husband left early. By the end of the night, the only people left in the room were Ray, Joan, and Ray's driver, Carl, as he was a safe buffer, making sure nothing scandalous happened. The three hung out, talking on and on, until Joan finally left. This meeting solidified Joan's readiness to divorce her husband and marry Ray. Ray's wife at the time, Jane, as she was a sweet and warm woman, Joni told Ray to let her down gently because she didn't deserve to be dealt with so coldly. Ray agreed, and through the divorce with Jane, Jane was given the house in Beverly Hills. McDonald's opens its 1,000th restaurant, and up until this point, the McDonald's logo was two yellow arches crisscrossing over each other with a diagonal line going through both arches. This changed with the diagonal line being taken out and both arches meeting in the center, resembling the McDonald's M logo that we all know today. Along with the logo redesign came the redesign of the McDonald's buildings as a whole. This redesign came in the classic brown mansard roofs that came in two slopes. Along with all these redesigns came an idea that Ray Kroc really didn't care for. But this idea came in the form of Mini Macs. Which Mini Macs were a scaled down version of a McDonald's restaurant. They were built in smaller towns where a full sized McDonald's wasn't needed. The first Mini Mac did well, so 22 more Mini Macs were built. The Minimax varied when it came to seating areas, as some Minimax had no seating at all, and some had up to 38 seats. After a while though, as population grew, the idea just kind of faded away, and Ray Kroc knew this in the first place, as a lot of Minimax just turned into standard-sized McDonald's restaurants anyways. And to close up 1968 in a really sweet way, Ray was looking for a dessert item for the McDonald's menu. He tried out strawberry shortcake, then he tried out pound cake, then he reached out to see if anyone had any ideas, 
And a franchisee in Knoxville, Tennessee had his mom's apple pie recipe of these tiny size fried turnover styled apple pies. They were crisp and golden all around with apple pie filling. Ray loved this idea, and the Knoxville location wound up being the supplier as it became a menu item across the entire United States by the 1970s. March 8, 1969, Ray Kroc and Joan Smith finally got married on a ranch home in Southern California that Ray had bought in 1965. June 1969, the look of all of the McDonald's changed from the stainless steel double arch buildings with the very limited seating inside to the brick and mansard roof look which gave an expanded area for indoor seating that most McDonald buildings still look like today. Other fast food chains started popping up and copying the McDonald's method which Ray would be mad about, and he'd explain that the other chains were gimmicks and didn't offer the same quality of food and affordable prices. Ray Kroc prided himself on having no soybean filler in the hamburgers, and that all the hamburgers were 100% real beef, and he made sure that the customers got their food in less than 5 minutes, or they get their money back. And by the end of 1969, McDonald's sold its 5 billionth hamburger. In 1970, the Shamrock Shake was first introduced to celebrate St. Patrick's Day in the United States, Canada, and Ireland. It was available leading up to and during the month of March, and today it's known as a mint-flavored shake with a green look. But the story of how the Shamrock Shake was created is a bit of a mystery, as there's two different stories. Now, when I research for the history of things, I want to make sure I'm getting the right story. And sometimes I will come across a conflicting story, and I'll have to dig and dig and dig until I find which one is right and which one is wrong. But with the Shamrock Shake, both of these stories seem to have weight to them in one way or another. So let's go over each story, and I'm not going to tell you whether which one is true or which one isn't because I couldn't figure it out myself. The first story is that McDonald's franchisee Hal Rosen wanted to have a product to sell during St. Patrick's Day, and he came up with the mint shamrock shake in 1966. Then there's the second story, where the shake was created by Rogers Merchandising in Chicago, who was a client for McDonald's, And if this story is true, this is the one where McDonald's originally had lemon-lime sherbet along with vanilla ice cream in to make the shamrock shake green. And if we're still going along with this story, in 1973 the lemon-lime was taken out and it was just a vanilla shake with green coloring in it. Regardless, the first mentioning that I could find with the shamrock shake having mint flavoring in it was from a paper advertisement in 1979. And then in 1980, an ad stating new minty shamrock shakes and shamrock sundaes, which the shamrock sundae was only available for the 1980 St. Patrick's Day season. And then after that, it was discontinued due to poor sales. So nevertheless, by 1970, shamrock shakes were being sold at McDonald's. And then came McDonald land, to where McDonald's hired an advertising group to create commercials to appeal to kids more than just the simple Ronald McDonald spots. And what they came up with was McDonald land, 
a fantasy land full of upbeat music with live-action characters that were always out to get some kind of food from McDonald's, such as the Hamburglar always trying to steal hamburgers. The McDonaldland-themed TV commercials carried on until 2003. And since being under new ownership when the McDonald brothers sold it off in 1968, the original McDonald's, now called the Big M, closes its doors for good. 1971, the first Australian location in Yaguna, New South Wales was opened, and McDonald's in Australia is known locally as Macca's. The first Asian McDonald's opened in the summer of 1971 in Japan in Tokyo's Ginza district. And the first European McDonald's opens in Zandam, Netherlands. And there was now a McDonald's in all 50 states of the United States of America. The first early version of the value meal was introduced in the form of the Big Meal that touted a meal including the Big Mac, a side of fries, and a soft drink. McDonald's also adopted the slogan, You deserve a break today. Then a franchisee in Fremont, California, Al Bernardin, the man responsible for bringing frozen french fries to the attention of McDonald's, felt like there should be a burger on the menu that would have more meat to it. As he experimented in his restaurant's kitchen, he came up with the Quarter Pounder. He started selling them at his McDonald's using the slogan, Today Fremont? Tomorrow the world. By 1972, the Quarter Pounder was available on every McDonald's menu in the United States. Then, just after a year of it closing in 1970, the original San Bernardino McDonald's location was torn down. And as the year came to an end, Mac McDonald passed away from a heart attack on December 11, 1971, at the age of 69. By 1972, McDonald's was making a billion dollars in sales yearly as America became more fast-paced and driven. McDonald's became the go-to place to get food while on the go. Then there was a franchise operator at the Santa Barbara, California McDonald's location and asked Ray Kroc to look into a new sandwich that they created which wound up being the Egg McMuffin. It was a slice of Canadian bacon, a griddle fried egg that is cooked inside of a ring, and a slice of American cheese on a toasted and buttered English muffin. This gave Ray the idea to get into the breakfast food market with McDonald's, a food also going along with the coffee morning customers would always purchase. The first Egg McMuffin was served at the Belleville, New Jersey McDonald's in 1972. And as 1972 came to a close, Ray Kroc wanted to do more with himself, and by the end of the year, he showed interest to buy the Chicago Cubs, but it didn't pan out. October 23rd, 1973, the first Swedish McDonald's restaurant opens in Stockholm. In 1974, Ray was looking at the San Diego area and realized how beautiful it was, so he looked into buying the San Diego Padres baseball team. Fortunately for Ray, the owner of the Padres was in financial trouble, and he was more than happy to sell the team off. Even though the San Diego Padres wasn't doing too hot at the time, Ray got deeply involved, from the team, to the office staff, to the food being served at the ballpark. He gave all of the workers for the team raises, even when they lost more games than they won. 
At one point, Ray was so disgusted about how poorly the Padres played that he jumped into the announcer's booth and apologized to everyone in the stadium of how bad they played. Even though Ray was hard on the team every once in a while, he still loved the whole experience. Then Ray went on to open the first Ronald McDonald house in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, which was a home away from home for families of children in nearby hospitals getting treatment. Seeing rival restaurant Wendy's claiming to have their first modern drive-thru window in 1971, McDonald's opened its first drive-thru in 1975 in Sierra Vista, Arizona. Their goal was to have the order in and out in 50 seconds or less. 1976, the 4,000th McDonald's opened in Montreal, Canada. Ray also hired chef René Arend to make McDonald's food more nutritious and to help create new menu items. Arend was the one who would later on create Chicken McNuggets and the McRib. In 1977, Ray Kroc reassigned himself to the role of senior chairman, and his book and autobiography, Grinding It Out, The Making of McDonald's, is available in bookstores. Ray Kroc also celebrated his 75th birthday, where Harry Sonneborn and June Martino attended, and we're all happy to have met again after all the years and disagreements. Closing out 1977, McDonald's introduced their breakfast menu consisting of hotcakes, toasted English muffins, scrambled eggs, sausage, hash browns, danishes, and the Egg McMuffin. 1978, the 5,000th McDonald's restaurant opens in Kanagawa, Japan. So we're going to branch back a little bit and look at the history of the Happy Meal. So during the mid-1970s, Yolanda Cofino ran a McDonald's with her husband in Guatemala and created what she called Menu Ronald. The Menu Ronald consisted of a hamburger, small fries, and a small sundae. The aim of the Menu Ronald was to help moms easily order something for their kids. McDonald's management heard about the menu, Ronald, and they loved it. Through some brainstorming, they thought if kids got their own meal instead of eating off of what their parents got, everyone would be happier. As they thought back to the games and fun things printed on cereal boxes that kids would look at while they ate their cereal, they turned that into what these meals would be packaged in. A cardboard box design with two arches at the top to serve as a handle along with adding jokes, stories, comics, and games to the printing on the boxes. The food items in the box, along with a small drink, would be a hamburger, small fries, a packet of cookies, and a surprise gift. The man in charge of developing it all was Bob Bernstein, and he called it the Happy Meal. And the Happy Meal was first introduced in the Kansas City market October 1977. And later on, the Happy Meal hit nationally in the United States in 1979. The original Happy Meal toys available in 1979 were the McDoodle stencil, a McWrist wallet, an ID bracelet, a puzzle lock, a spinning top, or a McDonaldland character eraser. 
Also in 1979, menus in Braille are introduced. And in 1980, the 6,000th McDonald's restaurant opens in Munich, Germany. And Ray Kroc, dealing with alcoholism, suffered a stroke and was admitted to a rehab center. And at the beginning of the decade in 1980, people's tastes were changing and they were wanting to eat more healthy alternatives. So McDonald's then introduced the McChicken. It sold poorly its first go-around and was discontinued shortly after. The McChicken presently is a bit smaller than it was originally, and it's now a part of the dollar menu. In 1981, after the failure of the McChicken sandwich, Chicken McNuggets were introduced into select areas to test market out. The Chicken McNuggets recipe was first created in 1979 by McDonald's' executive chef, René Arend, as he took boneless chicken meat that's fried in batter and then flash froze it. So in 1981, when the McNuggets first came out, everybody loved them so much that other franchises wanted the McNuggets. But the system they were using didn't supply enough chicken to provide for all of the franchises. So a couple years later, the chicken supply was fixed, and the Chicken McNuggets made its national U.S. debut in 1983. And fun fact, McDonald's states that McNuggets come in four different shapes. The bell, the bow tie, the ball, and the boot. The reasons for these shapes are for food cooking consistency and food safety, and they were also chosen for a balance of dippability and fun. So since the McNugget shortage was happening and other franchises wanted a new menu item, Rene Arend thought of the McRib. It's a rib-shaped pork patty smothered in barbecue sauce, onions, and pickles, and being served on a 5.5 inch roll. The McRib was first test marketed in the Midwest, and it did really well. Then after testing did well, it went national, and then sales were poor, and by 1985 it was removed from the menu. The McRib is popular in Germany, as it's a permanent item on the menu there. But almost everywhere else, the McRib has come back for limited times throughout the years, being reintroduced in 1989, up until the present where it usually now appears during the fall season. On January 14, 1984, at the age of 81 years old, Ray Kroc passed away from heart failure and was buried in San Diego, California. Ray Kroc spent his final years confined to a wheelchair, but still made it to the McDonald's office in San Diego almost every day. He never stopped working for McDonald's. His wife Joan went on to donate a lot of his fortune. At the time of Ray Kroc's death, his personal fortune was estimated to be at $500 million, but Joan gained way more after the fact, as McDonald's continued to grow. She continued to be charitable, and most notably, she had in her will to leave $1.6 billion to be donated to the Salvation Army and $225 million to National Public Radio. On November 30, 1984, Dick McDonald, the first cook behind the grill of a McDonald's, was served the ceremonial 50 billionth McDonald's hamburger. In 1986, the 100th Ronald McDonald House was opened. 1987, the first promotional McDonald's Monopoly game was ran. 1992, the first McDonald's in Africa and the Arab world opens in Casablanca, Morocco. 
1993, the first McDonald's in the Middle East opens in Israel. In Melbourne, Australia, the McCafe is debuted. The McCafe is a subsidiary of McDonald's, and it was created to bring an atmosphere and also to create foot traffic at the entrance, as the Melbourne location had a really long distance between the entrance and the counter. In 1994 came the famous hot coffee case. As it went to trial, the hot coffee case was a lawsuit that Stella Liebeck, a 79-year-old woman, had against McDonald's when in 1992 she ordered a coffee from McDonald's and accidentally spilled it on her lap, making her suffer third-degree burns and having her wind up in the hospital for eight days as she underwent skin grafting procedures. Liebeck's attorney argued that McDonald's coffee being served at 180 to 190 degrees Fahrenheit was defective and too hot compared to other places that served coffee. This sparked a lot of controversy, as people said that it's not the company's fault if someone spills coffee on themselves. A spokesman for the National Coffee Association said that the temperature of the McDonald's coffee conformed to the industry standards and even more so when coffees at other places like Burger King and Starbucks were looked at, they had higher temperatures than McDonald's. Prior to going to court, McDonald's refused to settle. So Liebeck, seeking $160,000 for medical expenses and compensation and $2.7 million in punitive damages, the jury decided that the hot coffee warning on the coffee cups was not large enough. The judge wound up lowering the verdict and awarded Stella Liebeck with $6,400,000. Both McDonald's and Liebeck then settled for a confidential amount before it went to appeals. In 1996, to appeal to the adult audience with some more sophistication, McDonald's attempted to expand a new sandwich, the Arch Deluxe. The Arch Deluxe was called the burger with the grown-up taste, as it was a quarter pound of beef on a split-top potato flour sesame seed bun topped with a circular piece of peppered bacon, leaf lettuce, tomato, American cheese, onions, ketchup, and a secret mustard and mayonnaise sauce. It was first test marketed in October 1995 in McDonald's restaurants in Canada, and then it officially released in May 1996 with an expensive advertising campaign. Due to its certain style of commercials, the high calories, and the price of the sandwich going over $2 a piece, the Arch Deluxe flopped hard, as McDonald's spent over $300 million in research, production, and marketing. But the Deluxe line of sandwiches were still sold in some McDonald's stores in 1998 and 1999. But on August 18, 2000, the Arch Deluxe was discontinued and has never been available since. In 1997, we saw the McFlurry. It was invented by a franchisee in Canada in 1995. The McFlurry was first test marketed in Hawaii, and then it became an international sensation. The McFlurry is whipped vanilla McDonald's soft serve ice cream in a cup, mixed with a variety of candies, cookies, or toppings, and served with a plastic spoon that is also used during the making of the McFlurry, serving as a blender blade to mix the ingredients. 
1998, Dick McDonald passed away, leaving behind a $1.8 million estate. By the end of Dick's life, he looked back fondly and warmly about the whole situation with Ray, almost considering Ray Kroc a friend, not regretting at all missing out on the fortune Ray made. Dick learned not to let things get to him, and it was for the better. 2002 McDonald's posts its first quarterly loss in history at $344 million. With this new low in the stock price, McDonald's started messing around with new ideas on how to revamp the brands in the stores, so they started out by testing a new store idea. So in October of that year, McDonald's opened one of two of its corporate stores in Lincoln, Nebraska to test the 3-in-1 McDonald's concept. The McDonald's 3-in-1 had a sandwich and platter dining area, a bakery and ice cream area with gourmet coffees, and a traditional McDonald's restaurant rolled into one. At first, the idea of the 3-in-1 McDonald's was doing okay. Then April 2003, the second 3-in-1 McDonald's was opened, and then the whole concept was terminated in less than a year. So even though the 3-in-1 menu offered things like meatloaf and turkey with gravy, along with cinnamon rolls and ice cream sundaes, most people just went to the regular McDonald's section to get Big Macs and fries. So with that, the 3-in-1 McDonald's restaurant concept was killed off. McDonald's then started to promote a more healthier and high-quality image, introducing premium salads, McGriddles, and chicken selects. McDonald's comes out with its new slogan, I'm loving it. In 2004 came a documentary film by Morgan Spurlock, who eats nothing but McDonald's for 30 days to show the effects the food has on his body. The movie was called Super Size Me, in which after this movie came out, McDonald's dropped the supersize options from their menu. 2005, Ronald McDonald gets a more fit and sporty look, and McDonald's opens a Wi-Fi service for the Nintendo DS video game system, and McDonald's in Singapore started the Mick Delivery Service, where customers could order food over the phone and get it delivered to them wherever they are, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. In 2006, McDonald's announced that by March of 2006, they will have nutritional information of all of their food on its packaging and that the menu would push for more healthier options, such as salads and chicken. Along with this fresh food push came a redesigning of their restaurants called Forever Young. And seeing that the McDonald's' last redesign was almost 40 years prior in 1969, McDonald's was in a bad need of a new look, building-wise. A lot of people argued, though, that the brown mansard roofs was part of McDonald's' brand. But spokespeople for McDonald's stated that the renovation of McDonald's restaurants was an investment that needed to be done in order to keep business going for the next 50 years. In the late 90s, McDonald's urged its franchisees to paint the brown roofs red and yellow as a form of a band-aid to keep the buildings looking new and fresh. But by 2006, a whole new renovation needed to be done. With these forever young renovations, it would turn McDonald's to look much like how a standalone Starbucks coffee shop would look. The colors of the restaurant would have a less plastic look and more of an all-natural tint, with framed art decorating the walls, 
a brick and wood look lit by soft warm lighting, the restaurant was broken up into three different seating areas. The first area was called the hangout area, with armchairs and sofas and Wi-Fi available, along with some locations actually having a fireplace. Then there's the quick zone with bar stools at tables with mounted TVs in the area. And then there's the zone for families that had more padded seating areas and featured a colorful look for children. And for the most part, the renovations and redesign was all for the better. In 2007, McDonald's put out a 42-ounce supersized soda under a new name called Hugo. 2009, McDonald's debuts three different Angus burgers, the Angus Deluxe, the Angus Bacon and Cheese, and the Angus Mushroom and Swiss. In 2010, McDonald's debuts its fruit and maple oatmeal to its menu. 2012, McDonald's starts posting the calories of each of their products on menus and in their drive-thrus. In 2015, McDonald's in the United States started its all-day breakfast menu where customers could order breakfast items any time of the day and not just in the morning anymore. In 2016, the film The Founder, based on Ray Kroc's book Grinding It Out, starring Michael Keaton as Ray Kroc, is premiered and it hit theaters nationally in the United States on January 20th, 2017. 2018, in celebration of the 50th anniversary of the Big Mac, a new sandwich called the Grand Mac was available for a limited time. The Grand Mac was a Big Mac, but just larger with one-third pound of beef. 2019, McDonald's opens the McHive. Located in Sweden, it's the world's smallest McDonald's. It's scaled down to exact specifications for bees to have a hive in. The McHive was made to bring attention to save the bees around the world that have been dying off to a various amounts of factors. The McHive represented the many McDonald's restaurants in Sweden who put beehives on their roofs and wildflowers in the garden areas of the restaurant in efforts to save the bees. The McHive wound up being sold at an auction for $10,000, where the proceeds went to the Ronald McDonald House. And now we're in 2020, where, despite coronavirus, McDonald's is still in business and still going strong. As McDonald's has gone from a small barbecue stand in California, to a small company swimming deeply in debt, to a massive boom going worldwide... The familiar and great tastes of food from McDonald's is here to stay and bring more tastier things for the future. And that is your history of McDonald's.
as this episode of Industrial Industries World Radio does come to a close, I want to just say this is just the story of McDonald's. This is only part one of what I want to do with McDonald's. We haven't even gotten into the fun facts. We haven't gone over the menu over the years. We haven't done a lot of things yet. So this is going to be either a two-parter or a three-parter because I'm going to be conducting interviews with people who have worked at McDonald's, them sharing their stories, all of that. So we are not done with McDonald's, even after this long, long episode. I hope you really enjoyed it, the story of McDonald's. It was very exciting and fun for me to do all the research, a lot of work, but it, it, it was a great experience overall. There's some people that I'd really love to thank. First and foremost, Giuliano for graphic design, Kimmy Pops for voiceover work, and a special, special thanks to a good friend of mine, Joe, who made things clear for me about Catholics and eating meat and all of that stuff. Thanks for clearing up the facts with that, Joe. Much appreciated. And i also just like to thank McDonald's. Thank Ray Kroc. Thank Mac and Dick McDonald for making something that has almost connected the world through eating. And last but not least, I would like to thank you for listening. So anyways, I will see you next time. This was episode 34 of Industrial Industries World Radio, and I am DJ Glowing Ice saying peace out. next time on Industrial Industries World Radio.